Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And as this episode is coming to all you guys and gals out there, it is, of course, coming uh, to you right as we're leading up into St. Patrick's Day, which uh, I have always loved St. Patrick's Day. I don't have... Uh, I, I'm basically of Scotch-German heritage, so I don't have that, you know, distinctive Irish roots uh, link mm-hmm. to it, and I don't have, you know, I don't have the like the Catholic uh, link to it uh, either. But uh, from a very early age, like my family was always into St. Patrick's Day. You know, my mom's mom is a kindergarten teacher, so we would have green things, we would eat green treats, green beer. De- well, no green beer, but but maybe like a green cake or a cupcake or something. And I still, St. Patrick's Day comes around, I'm like, I need to eat something that's green. I need to get like a pistachio cupcake or have some pistachio pudding. Um, but more importantly, we would, to a certain extent, we would celebrate the, uh, the, the Irish myth of the, of the leprechaun. Uh, we would always watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People, that classic uh, Disney film with Sean Connery in it. Wow, you guys did it up. Yeah, yeah, we were big into the holidays. Okay. Um, so we would always watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Sean Connery would sing, and it was awesome. Leprechauns would run around. There was a banshee. Um, you know, it was just it was a great film. I I still watch it from time to time. I just I feel like this has really informed like your ideas of creatures in the world. Like somehow this is like an early influence on you. Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, we we really got into Halloween, and then we would really get. My big thing on, on holidays is that if a holiday has magic to it, then it, in, in creatures specifically, mm-hmm. then it's great. Like I can, obviously Halloween I love. Right. Uh, Christmas, you know, you know, the Christmas season can get a bit annoying with this over commercialization, but ultimately it's a season in which, uh, on one hand you have a magical man sneaking into your house to give you gifts. There's, there's Krampus running around beating people. Yeah. There's, uh, what's his name? Broomschnickel, the, uh, the other, uh, Germanic, uh, holiday visitor. There are various takes on Saint Nick. And then, and if you get into the more religious aspect of it too, you have like the, the son of God being born on earth. There, there are all these fantastic things happening. Saint Patrick's Day is also in that vein, unlike Valentine's Day, where it's just about people are in love and stuff. But, but St. Patty's Day, there's this backbone of myth and legend to it, and uh, and, it, and it's awesome. So, so what is your your background with leprechaun? Uh, well, quickly, Valentine's Day clearly needs some sort of creature because yes. it's lacking that. We um, should we should really get into the idea of brainstorming that with our listeners. Yeah, yeah, that's another that's a side project for all of us. Um, but for me, St. Pat's has just always been St. Pat's. I gotta say, in my family, it was sort of like there. Santa Claus is really like the dude down the street who's dressing up, and um, leprechauns don't exist, Julie. Really? Yeah, and happy fourth oh. birthday. Oh, I'm just kidding. No, but really, that wasn't. <laughs> that's not really something that we celebrated much. But I will say that the diminutive stature of leprechauns always thought were fascinating as a little kid. And what I find even more fascinating is that there is a type of hallucination that deals with this this Lilliputian quality. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today because, again, in celebration of St. Patty's Day, but also uh, as a further investigation into how the mind works and how it scales our reality. Yeah. So in this episode, we're we're kicking off with a little pop culture leprechaun uh, shenanigans here. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the myth of the leprechaun because I think it's it's ultimately far deeper than Lucky Charms and Darby O'Gill, and uh, I want to make sure I do that justice. Mm-hmm. And then we are going to get into hallucinations and how uh, some of these hallucinations 
can contribute and, and, and or possibly are responsible for our visions of little people. That's right, because as, as we uh, had mentioned, this is a, a sort of subtype of hallucinations that exist across uh, various conditions that we'll get into. All right, so the leprechaun. Uh, the leprechaun. From Irish folklore, this is a fairy shoemaker, uh, and, he's, and he goes by various names, that include, and it really depends on where you are in a particular region of Ireland uh, and or the, the history books. So you have Lucerpan, and again, this basically translates to little body. And then there are various uh, versions of that. Uh, Lubrican, Lubrican, Lucerpan, Leprechaun. There are all these various takes on it. But it's the one that we really go with today, of course, is Leprechaun. And the Leprechaun is, a, uh, is again, a shoemaker. You generally would see him with just a single shoe. There would never be a second shoe around, which is a little suspect uh-huh. and should have been a tip-off to people who end up messing with said Leprechaun. Is this like waste management job? Yeah. Like, you know, maybe that's for a leprechaun uh, being a shoemaker. Yeah, like you should be a little aware that where's the other shoe? There's something fishy going on. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, and this is something that will come up, if, especially if the leprechaun is pressed about uh, his personal belongings, uh, he carries a purse, but the purse only contains a single shilling, much like a pizza delivery boy uh, only carries $20 or less. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is, oh, you're going to try and steal me gold. I only have this one shilling. But... I may have lots of gold elsewhere. That's the big thing. This idea uh, grows that leprechauns have access to a massive quantity of gold. And, and certainly in the mythology, they do. They're paid by the fairy folk for what? I'm not sure. I guess repairing that one shoe mm-hmm. over and over again. So, And they're, they, they save up their money. And they're so they're laundering it. the money is what kind you're of, saying. Kind of laund- money okay. launders, the, the leprechauns. Uh, but people get this in their mind. Oh, there's a leprechaun. If I capture the leprechaun, then I can get access to his fabulous gold. I can make him tell me where it is. And later you get into the idea of the leprechaun gives you three wishes, but ultimately the root is if you catch a leprechaun, you can totally rob him of everything he owns. That's how the the average uh, leprechaun-chasing uh, uh, individual uh, was, was thinking. So uh, what would typically happen is you'd say, the, the classic story, of course, is the guy catches the leprechaun and says, oh, take me to your gold. Uh, and you have to know that if you look away from the leprechaun at all, then he can vanish, he can turn invisible. He's a supernatural creature with these powers at his disposal. So what happens is the leprechaun says, oh, I'll take you to the bush that I have the gold buried beneath. And so, and who knows if this bush actually has the gold under it or not. Uh, it, it works, the trick works well either way. But uh, he takes him out there and he says, oh, it's under this bush. And then the, the guy who's captured the leprechaun realizes, oh, I don't have a shovel. I have no way of digging up this gold. So... He says, I know what I'll do. I'll take uh, this red bandana or this uh, this kerchief or whatever, and I'll tie it. Tie this red kerchief to this bush. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go home, and I'll get my shovel, and I'll come back. So he lets the leprechaun free, goes back home. He gets the shovel, comes back. And what has the leprechaun done? The leprechaun has tied the red kerchief to every bush and tree in sight. So there's no way for him to remember which bush. What's he going to do, dig up all of them? He'll try for a little bit before he loses his mind, I guess. But that's the the trickster aspect of the leprechaun. Okay, see, that just takes me back to the 30 Rock maxim, which is never follow a hippie to a second location. Yes. Same thing with, with the leprechaun, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he the leprechauns engage in various uh, tricks like this. Uh, they are largely solitary creatures, though they do have a king named Lubden. They're all males, too, correct? Yeah, I did see some possible mention of female leprechauns, and the idea being that female leprechauns do exist, but they're even more tricky. So they're, I guess they're harder to observe in mm-hmm. nature. They're making that second shoe. Yeah. Or maybe they're less into 
messing around and, and, and deceiving uh, humans. Because uh, ultimately, the idea here is that uh, leprechauns are a type of fairy folk. They are fairies. And fairies, uh, the notion of fairy varies greatly around the world, but there exists a, a nearly global idea of diminutive magical humanoids and uh, that are out there in the world, mm-hmm. um, often generally hidden from view, kind of an underworld taking place, or uh, you know, or in the natural world, or underground, or you know, somewhere that that humans are less likely to see them during the course of their day. Uh, and they they vary in temperament depending on the myth. Sometimes they are they're benign. Sometimes they're mischievous. Sometimes they're they help humans out. Sometimes they steal babies from the cribs and replace them with changelings. It it varies. Now, folk historian Carol Rose. Uh, who I love. I've always loved her. Uh, she has two encyclopedias, one about monsters, one more about fairies. And uh, uh, I, I keep I always keep them by my desk uh, next to, to Brewers and my other monster books. But uh, she divides fairies into two types. You have trooping fairies, and these are fairies that have communities, kingdoms, and governments. And then you have solitary fairies. And these are the ones, kind of like the leprechaun, they're more associated with uh, one place. Uh, and they don't really necessarily have as much to do with the rest of their kind. So for the Irish, the most... Famous solitary fairies are the Leprechaun, of course, uh, arguably the Banshee. Uh, and then you also have uh, their more famous trooping fairies, the Dinashi, formerly known as the Tuertha de Danan, and, uh, which means the people of the goddess Dana. And these are a legendary race of super beings who overthrew two other ancient people in primordial, primordial Ireland that included the monstrous Fearbolgs, these were the second inhabitants of Ireland, squat and dark, also known as the Corca Odisi, the people of darkness, or the Corca Duibni, the people of night. Um, when the uh, Tuatha de Dani uh, f- defeated them, they forced them to retreat into the mountain caves, and they kind of, um, you know, devolved into grotesque, goblin-like creatures in the ground. And then they also defeated the Fomorians, who were uh, tra- themselves transformed into grotesque demons when they fell to the invading furbogs. So um, what's really great about, about Irish legend and myth is that when you get past the, the leprechaun and the banshee, when you get past Darby O'Gill and Lucky Charms and the, the awful leprechaun movies, there's this rich, powerful, epic story of these uh, these genocidal wars between these different uh, races of super beings. Because the dynasty, the uh, Tuatha de Danin, they had all of these intense magical powers at their disposal. They could turn invisible. They could shapeshift. They could uh, blink out of existence here and blink back into existence over there. Uh, and they were always fighting these wars. Uh, for instance, uh, they were fighting at one point against uh, the Fomorian chief, Balar, who had an evil eye in his forehead that destroyed all who looked upon it. Hmm. And uh, and sometimes you see this as kind of like a third eye in his head. Some depict it that way. Others depict him as like a one-eyed man with like a... Uh, the, and the one eye has to be covered because if anybody makes eye contact with it, they die. One of my favorite um, artistic examples of this, though, is the idea that uh, he has like one eye where his two eyes should be, mm-hmm. but his brow has grown out into this grotesque flap that uh, falls over his face. And so to unleash the power of his eye in battle, he has to have two people with uh, like a, a wooden pole come up and use that wooden pole to lift his floppy brow up so that he can destroy them with his sight. Um, so, okay. Well, one more, and then I'm, then I'm done. Uh, and then also, uh, the Tuatha de Danann, they, they had a king named uh, Nuada, and uh, Nuada lost an arm in battle. Uh, and so they replaced it with a silver arm, 
which they then grew flesh over. So he had this amazing, like, magical cybernetic arm. So, okay, I'll stop now. No, I mean, it, <laughs> when we get into prosthetics here, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. what, what I'm trying to say is that they have a rich uh, cultural history uh, and some amazing um, mythology going on there beyond the leprechaun. But yeah. all of this relates to uh, fairy folk. Like, eventually, the idea is that even these magical people were defeated by essentially the modern-day Celts. And they drive right. all of these magical people out into the peripheries of the world. But you can still glimpse them. You still see them sometimes. Well, see, this is what I think is so interesting about it, is that it is so deeply ingrained in the cultural fabric, particularly in, in, when we talk about leprechauns in Ireland, right? Right. And how this really informs everybody's perception of life. And I wanted to point out a couple of things. One is that leprechauns are protected under European Union law. I kid you not. This is, that was crazy to find out about. Yes, at least the ones that dwell in Collingford in Ireland. Uh, the directive is an effort to preserve the rich biodiversity of the area called the Sliab Foy Loop, which is now a protected area for flora, fauna, wild animals, and leprechauns. And uh, this is a directive that was stemmed in part by a group of lobbyists who recounted a tale in 1989 of P.J. O'Hare, who happened to be over by Wishing Well, this man, Mm -hmm. and he heard a scream, and he said he went to the Wishing Well, and he found, um, first of all, a patch of burnt ground, and beside this patch, he found a little hat, jacket, and trousers with four gold coins in the pockets. The clothes of the naked leprechaun, as uh, this leprechaun is called, are actually on display at PJ's pub in Carlingford. So, uh, you know, is this a tourist trap? Absolutely. <laughs> but again, is it part of the imagination, the the uh, the cultural fabric? And, um, you know, I'm not saying that PJ O'Hare was, that he actually witnessed, uh, you know, this what we see is uh, maybe a streaking leprechaun gone gone wild but um but but perhaps PJ O'Hare was also participating in um you know some sort of cultural tradition maybe he had too much to drink or maybe he had a hallucination yes okay and this is where this really comes into play because uh, according to Oliver Sacks in his World Science Festival interview about his new book on hallucinations, he says that hallucinations really are cultural in nature and specific to the individual's background. So he said that seeing miniature people is one type of hallucination, as we said, a subtype. But depending on the person's cultural background, the miniature person could be a leprechaun, a dwarf, a fairy. So that's why I think this is fascinating, because... uh, if you have this hallucination, it is colored by your perception, what you have grown up with, the sort of stories, the, maybe the warfare, maybe the prosthetic arm of a leprechaun got lodged into your brain. Mm-hmm. And this is the sort of thing that might be expressed depending on um, certain external conditions or neurological conditions that you have. Uh, so, of course, if we're going to talk about these Lilliputian uh, hallucinations, and that's what they were called. Uh, we should first sort of give a little bit of an intro on hallucinations. Yeah. It's worth noting that hallucination, as we're discussing here, is just one way of, of looking at uh, essentially paranormal experience. As we discussed in our alien abduction episode, people have always seen weird things mm-hmm. in the woods, in the skies. It used to be fairies. Then depending on your cultural flavoring, maybe it's angels, or maybe sci-fi flavoring makes you see UFOs. 
we've always seen things. We've, we've always had these experiences. And there are various ways you can explain them that range from simple imagination of a youngster to neurological disorder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it's, it's definitely happening for the person who's experiencing them. Yeah, and uh, when we talk about hallucinations, we're talking about many different sensory modalities, talking about visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and other. Um, And you can actually, if a person is uh, undergoing a hallucination at the same time that they're going MRI, you can actually try to figure out the type of hallucination they're having by looking at the blood flow to the region of their brain. So, for instance, if you see increased blood flow to the fusiform gyrus, which is where you detect faces, then you know someone is having some sort of um, visual hallucination having to do with uh, perhaps even a little person. Um, so it's kind of funny to me because when we talk about hallucinations, we really think about them as being apart from us and otherworldly. Yeah, we tend to think of them, a hallucination is seeing something in the world as it is not. It's mm-hmm. seeing the world wrong. But that, that really implies that there is a correct and definitive way to experience reality. Yeah, and because I was thinking about this, we really do have a very uh, tenuous line between uh, imagination and reality. And I was thinking about this in the context of our blue sky, right? Yes. Because what is the blue sky but an illusion to us? Because if you think about it, uh, the only reason why we're seeing a blue sky is because uh, violet and blue have the shortest wavelengths, And they scatter a lot more than long ones when particles like oxygen and nitrogen molecules are present. So those are the ones that are most apparent to us. So that's what we see when we're looking up in the sky. And then it's not that we just see a purple and a blue sky. No, the mind can't even really sort of deal with that because of the machinery that we have um, with our perception of color. It kind of has to mix some of that with white until it turns out uh, to this cohesive blue that we look up in the sky at. Yeah, and as, as pointed out in the uh, the excellent colors episode of Radio Lab, um, it's it's arguable that too that individuals who do not have a preconceived notion of blue would not really see the sky as blue. Like there's also that level of cultural layering on. Yeah. So it really makes you think. To, to what extent am I experiencing the world around you? I mean, ultimately, our brain. It's uh, it's it's inside of uh, some bone. It's inside of some skull. It depends on these sensory uh, mechanisms to experience the world and then translate that into data. So, essentially, the brain is blind anyway. Well, and it's highly sensitive to suggestion. Uh, yeah. We've mentioned this before, but there's a 2011 study at Hull University in the UK, and it asked participants to imagine a color while looking at a gray pattern. And what they found is that uh, those people who were most susceptible to hypnosis, in other words, given to suggestion, they were able to actually hallucinate the colors at will when they were asked to, yeah. which was corroborated by an MRI. So, again, there's this idea of, you know, what is, you know, we bring this up a lot, like what is reality and how much of it is colored by our perceptions? Yeah, so so much of the, I mean, you can argue that our perception of reality itself is a, is an hallucination and any... Um, Alteration of that is just a, it's just a change in the flavoring. Um, for instance, there's a closed eyes visualization, closed eye um, hallucinations that occur. It, when I was a kid, I would do this a lot, where I would close my eyes, mm-hmm. you know, I guess just because I was bored. And generally, you see colors moving around. 
uh, it's like an instant fireworks show. Maybe I was just easily amused. I don't know. I was, I was, a, I was an only child for a bit until my, my sisters were born. So I had to spend a lot, you know, a certain amount of time by myself. Uh, but even now, as I've discussed uh, before in yoga, mm-hmm. uh, when I'm uh, engaged in uh, Shavasana, the corpse pose uh, meditation at the end of the, the yoga session, I'm closing my eyes and I'm seeing, and, and I'll end up seeing colors and ultimately I'll see forms and figures and faces even. And, uh, and really that is an example of closed eye hallucination. I'm not doing anything to my body in this in, in, in instance except working out uh, with yoga for a little bit mm-hmm. and then sort of calming myself. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing things that are, are not there within my mind. That's interesting because when I was little, one of my favorite things to do was to close my eyes and pretend I was on a grid and shrink myself Ooh. and then expand myself on that grid. And I thought I was a little bit insane. But, you know, you're, I felt my body doing that. And so it's it's interesting that there's part of our brain that we can really tap into mm-hmm. to manipulate our experiences like this. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, though, we are going to talk about this specific type of hallucination that deals with uh, the detection of tiny things, tiny people, tiny animals. All right, we're back. And in this episode, we, of course, started off by talking a little bit about fairy folk and leprechauns, paranormal experience, essentially. And we're getting into the, into discussion of how hallucination, in particular modes of hallucination, make us see tiny people and tiny things. Yeah, and, you know, before we start talking about... Um about this perception or this illusion of, of tiny people or things, I wanted to point out that it is amazing when you think about it that our eyes and our minds are able to visually reconstruct things. So, mm-hmm. um, for instance, if you have you know, a plate on the table and a fork next to it and you continue to look back and forth at those items, your brain has to, over and over again, visually reconstruct those items and also do that um you know, in the context of moving back and forth. So it's got the movement element. And uh, what we're talking about here is perceptual constancy. So what your mind is doing is saying that plate is still a plate and is still the dimension that it is, is still the scale that it is. And this is a lot of work for your brain to do and your eye to do to take in all of this data and make us feel as though we are on the same uh, constant state where things are are the same and have a constancy to them. Yeah, one of the things that this discussion of hallucination really drives home is that sight and our perception, our uh, the, the, the mental processes that make sight possible, are pretty complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the least little bit of something can can go wrong or or change, and it can uh, can have some pretty dramatic effects on how you perceive reality. Yeah, it's funny because you really do take it for granted how stable the images are around you and how stable the story that that your perception is telling you is, uh, all because of these different parts of your brains working in concert. There is something called micropsia, or Alice in Wonderland syndrome, and this is when objects actually appear smaller. And it's not necessarily the mechanics of the eyes, but it's really the interpretation of the data that causes the objects in the visual field to appear minuscule. So when you have these Lilliputian hallucinations, um, they are forming complex visual hallucinations of people, objects, or animals that are greatly reduced in size. Or sometimes exaggerated. Yes, sometimes yeah. exaggerated. Which also, you know, 
ends up going into all sorts of mythological possibilities there as well. Right. We've got some examples, too, mm-hmm. that, that really sort of dwell on this. And uh, the hallucinations are vivid, and they evoke varied responses, including fear, anxiety, or even pleasure. Um, they've been seen across the board in people who are experiencing delirium tremens um, from alcohol withdrawal, people who have eyesight problems such as macular degeneration, mm-hmm. and people with mental disorders like schizophrenia. Uh, although in schizophrenia, even though hallucinations are, are more common, this type of hallucination, this Lilliputian, is very rare. Yeah, and uh, most of the cases that we were looking at with Lilliputian, uh, it's, a, it's a situation where the person is, is otherwise mentally fine. Like mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not a disturbed individual or a quote-unquote crazy person. Uh, it's not like, oh, that crazy person down the street seeing little people. Of course they are. They're crazy. No. It's, uh, for instance, one of the, the cases that Oliver Sacks talks about in, in his book, Hallucinations, which is excellent. Highly recommend anyone at all interested in this. Pick that up. It's very readable. Just a great book. Uh, in his book, he talks about a patient uh, that he refers to as Zelda, uh, who he treated in 2009. She was an historian. And uh, some of the hallucinations that she uh, ended up seeing included uh, she saw a great-granddaughter. She saw a trio of witches. She saw her hair rising up in the mirror like it was weightless. She saw tiny people crawling out of the TV. She saw gaily dressed figures sort of parading around. She saw six ominous tall men in brown suits around her hospital bed. <laughs> she saw little men in green caps. And she saw small fairy-like children uh, sort of moving around as well. Just to give you an idea, because a lot of these hallucinations, they again, it's things are larger or smaller than they need to be. Um, so you're you're encountering giants, you're encountering little people. Oftentimes, they're, they're really brilliant to behold. The color scheme will be amazing. So you the, the, in the costuming, if they if costumes are perceivable, the costumes will be crazy and and, and exotic right. and bright. So you can really see where the idea of a fairy folk can emerge from this, because oh, they were little people and they were dressed like they were from another world, and their their colors were unreal. And magical. Well, and they were mischievous too, right? A lot yeah. of times, these accounts have um, the, the the little people that are running around doing various things that are nefarious, or yeah, and they're disappearing or they're reappearing. They're yeah. not necessarily obeying the physical laws of our world. Now, these are called release hallucinations because it's thought that they are released or instigated by the removal of normal visual afferent input into the association cortex. So in the case of Zelda, there was um, reduced blood flow to the optical and parietal lobes. Yeah. And so this caused the hallucinations. Um, but probably one of the um, one of the things that is most associated with this is something called the Charles Bonnet syndrome. Yes, or CBS. Uh, and this is a common condition among people with compromised vision. So when we're saying compromised vision, of course, we're not saying the person is necessarily completely blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be suffering from just uh, age-related macular degeneration, cataracts, glaucoma, diabetic eye disease. Their sight may be somewhat limited, but they're still able to visually perceive the world to a certain degree. Yeah, the idea is that the information received from your eyes actually stops the brain from creating its own pictures. So when you lose your sight or partially lose your sight or it's damaged, your brain is not receiving as much information from your eyes as it's used to, and it begins to fill in those gaps by creating this sort of fantasy uh, pictures or patterns. And then when this occurs, you experience the images stored in your brain as hallucinations. Yeah, it's kind of this idea that the world that we live in, because you can... We look at, at, like, when we're just looking around a room, we're looking at 
particular little spaces, and then we're then we're moving in another little space. We're we're kind of basically the world that we're in exists in our minds, mm-hmm. and we use our vision to constantly upgrade the details of that mental image that we interact with. There was a, a one case of a Mississippi, an eighty-year-old woman. She complained of little people dressed in blue and gray leaves hiding in her cupboard, her uh, cupboards. And she also saw tiny black cats from time to time. And her chief complaint was that the little people like to watch her undress. Ah. So, uh, of course, she was examined. They found that her cognitive functions were fine, mm-hmm. fine, fine. And, uh, and that really, again, it came down to impairments in her visual field, again, creating this story from this lack of information that was being processed. Another interesting aspect about uh, uh, Lilliputians, especially as, a, as a related to CBS, uh, Oliver Sacks points out that most CBS hallucinations are ultimately it's inspiring, pleasant, even mm-hmm. friendly. Um, not to say they all are. There, there will be some that are a little disturbing, such as the, the, the brown-dressed uh, men that are really tall that are around Zelda's hospital bed. Yeah. That was that was ominous in nature. But for the most part they tend to be lighter and more amusing and, and, and magical in a in an uplifting sense. Whereas there's a lot that goes on with with paranormal experience, be it uh, alien abduction that is root uh, scenario which is rooted in uh, say sleep paralysis, mm-hmm. which is terrifying because your your mind body connection is doing something weird and Add a little flavoring to it from whatever your your worldview or mythology is, and it's a, it can be a terrifying situation. But with CBS, you tend to see these more sort of like, huh, there are little people in my closet. That's totally cool, but I would rather them not look at me while I'm naked. Yeah, there's this idea too that perhaps um, you know it has an adaptive function in terms of people who, in general, with hallucinations, not just little people, mm-hmm. that if someone has lost someone and. Uh, particularly in the elderly, if they hallucinate, you know, maybe a loved one who's departed, that this is a source of comfort yes. to them. So. Yeah, bereavement hallucinations. So yeah. There's a, a whole area as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's this idea that we're, as, as if we're losing our ability to update the mental image in our head, mm-hmm. we're having to update it internally. Like imagine you're in, inside your house and you're wanting to paint an image of your backyard. So you look out the back window every day and you paint a little more of this image and you update it a little more. And then one day your windows are walled up or they're frosted over and you can't see out them all that well. Well, then you have to, maybe you're listening. Maybe you're, uh, you're drawing on your memory to try and, and, uh, and, and alter that picture and make it, uh, as accurate as possible. But then inevitably you're bringing in, uh, errors. You're bringing in, um, even magical creations into that painting. That reminds me of, um, Anton syndrome. When there you have someone who is trying to replace, I put in quote their their uh, reality with a hallucination to simulate eyesight because oh because this occurs in generally people that are really like totally blind yes. or extremely uh, deteriorated totally eyesight. blind from cortical damage mm-hmm. um, and and that damage can be caused by stroke um, and this affects the optic lobes so these people are absolutely unaware of their blindness and they ins- insist that they can still see yeah like they'll say. They'll, you'll say like, hey, you, you're blind. Don't try and walk across the living room because there are toys all over the floor. And they'll say, I can totally see. And like, right. they, they believe they can see. Now they'll, they'll end up stepping on the toys because ultimately they, they, they can't. They are blind. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but to them, they feel they're experiencing reality. If you tell them, hey, uh, describe that person sitting on the couch over there, they won't blink. They'll just describe the person. The description may be completely wrong or it, it may be reasonably correct based on previous knowledge of the individual, you know, whatever, but 
that, but they won't hesitate because in their in their mind they do see. And see, I find that example so fascinating, uh, just because that really does point to this adaptive function. Because if you have lost your your eyesight and you are lacking that uh, stimuli, then your brain is just making a, sim- a simulacrum of that of yeah. reality, uh, which I think is just fascinating. Sachs also shared an account of uh, a patient who in the in the 1980s uh, would a blind patient, uh, went on a drinking binge and saw again while in the midst of this, this drinking binge. Mm-hmm. Like the, the next morning remembered having seen uh, as if his sight had returned. But it was a hallucination. It was an hallucination, yeah. yeah. But, and again, it just all, it, a lot of this really drives home just how complex sight is and how, it, and how complex our, our observation of the world is. To, and to what extent is, is all of our sight a, a hallucination? Yeah, again, this idea that there's this, uh, this visual constancy that goes on that we just, that's running in the background and we don't even think about, uh, how tenuous that is. So as, uh, Oliver Sachs points out, uh, uh, Lilliputian hallucinations can also occur in migraines. Uh, particularly he uh, points out uh, the migraine blog by, uh, Siri Hustvit on, uh, New York Times, which is a blog just about, uh, the author's experiences with mm-hmm. migraines. Now, I, I, do you experience migraines? I do, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what are they like for you? Do you ever see anything with them? Uh, or? sometimes I've seen lights and, uh, actually a, a good many of the females in my family have histories of really, like, pretty intense histories with migraines and they complain of uh, something they call an aura. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling and, and they also get the strobe light effect. Interesting. I, I've never experienced a migraine. My father used to get them and I think my, my sister experiences them from time to time as well. But in their, their more extreme nature there it's almost like a supernatural experience like mm-hmm. it's it's like something from another world is reaching out and, and touching your brain rather painfully uh, but in in certain way illuminatingly for a, a few seconds or minutes or, or, or what have you um, and again what we're talking about is uh, a sort of impairment of the visual field yeah. here right yeah people will see lights like you said geometric patterns. Uh, flashes of light, zigzags, uh, blind spots, shimmering spots or stars, mm-hmm. auras, and in some cases, tiny men and tiny animals. Uh, in, on the migraine blog, the author, uh, was talking about how they were reading, uh, reading a book lying there, um, and they looked down and they saw a small pink man and his pink ox, perhaps six or seven inches high. So, uh, the author says they were perfectly made creatures, and except for their color, they looked very real. They didn't speak to me, but they walked around, and I watched them with fascination and a kind of um, amiable tenderness. They stayed for some uh, minutes and then disappeared. I have often wished they would return, but they never have, um, which is it's just uh, uh, amazing to think of that. You know, you just said this migraine hits, and you look yeah. down, and there's a little pink farmer and his ox, and they're, they're not really concerned with you, which... Which ties in nicely with when we were talking about um, fairy experiences and, mm-hmm. and alien experiences, paranormal experiences around the world. They vary so much. Sometimes it is a terrible experience where you're like, oh, I'm being abducted by aliens or I'm tormented by demons. But in other cases, it's it's a, a matter of for a brief second, you have a peek into a magical world just beyond our own. Well, I think uh, anybody who has ever had a really bad migraine can attest to you. One of the things that is probably interesting to them, as well as me, is that when you have a, an awful one, it feels like the fog is rolling in, and it 
to some degree, it does feel like your vision is being affected, not just with the strobe light effect, but as if um, something's just kind of moving over your brain like a cloud. Yes. So it's interesting to see that that sort of deprivation of stimulation or stimuli might manifest itself with a Lilliputian hallucination. Yeah. In in the uh, the book, Sachs points out that uh, in a migraine, a wave of, quote, electrical excitation slowly moves across the visual cortex. Mm. And on the way, it's possible that it directly directly stimulates clusters of orientation-sensitive neurons in the visual cortex. And this direct stimulation causes patterns patients to see shimmering light Zigzag fortifications, etc. As we and as we see the wave move through the brain during a migraine, when we're looking uh, at brain scans, uh, it's 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 matching the movement of the shimmering bars in the patient's sight. Huh. So yeah. that that's very interesting. That that sense of movement isn't necessarily an illusion. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 uh, it's amazing. I mean, I I'm not envious of people who have to deal with migraines because, like I say, it's just a normal headache sufferer. Um, I would see my father get these migraines, and and I. It was like, wow, how can a headache be that bad that you just, you know, that you're, you're just, you know, gripping your skull? Mm-hmm. Like I've never had, had a, had a headache that bad. Uh, but, uh, but now that, now that I, like, I see a little bit more that what's involved in it, I can totally get it. Well, there you go. Uh, I hope that everybody has a wonderful St. Patrick's Day and that you keep in mind these Lilliputian hallucinations as you go about your day, clad in green, drinking green beer. And, and maybe thinking a little more about, uh, about leprechauns, being respectful of them, knowing not to chase them. <laughs> being uh, respectful, don't yes. try and kidnap them and, and rob them because they will uh, trick you. Uh, and maybe also when you're when you're thinking about about Irish culture and Irish mythology, know that there's there's a lot of rich stuff in there. Uh, in addition to the, the the leprechaun, in addition to Lucky Charms and and uh, the and the awful leprechaun horror movies. I mean, you have the Tuatha de Dan and. and and that they're pretty fabulous. And, so, and post-leprechaunism uh, uh, transformations with prosthetics. Yes. That exists for futurist yes. uh, one day, leprechauns one out day there. One day we can transform into leprechauns. Um, so if, uh, if anyone has anything you would like to share, be it on Irish myth and legend, uh, be it on your own history with leprechauns, but uh, more importantly, on your... Uh, your, your thoughts on the, the hallucination aspect of this episode. Uh, do you deal with migraines? And if you do, what kind of uh, hallucinatory experiences do you encounter? We would love to hear about that. Do you see the, the grid pattern, the fortification? Have you ever seen little people uh, due to migraines, due to CBS, uh, due to any other kind of uh, uh, paranormal experience? We, we'd love to hear from you. And if we, and, you know, because we are curious about about how other people perceive the world and, and about how neurological um, things can contribute to that. Uh, and, and if we share your material, you know, obviously we're going to do so in a respectful manner. So, uh, so let us know. In the meantime, let's call the robot over and do some quick listener mail. We, rece- we recently, of course, did the slime episodes, and mm-hmm. we did the Valentine's Day episode about slugs, mm-hmm. which there, there you go. If you need a monstrous creature to... <laughs> To associate with Valentine's Day, to add a little <laughs> you're magic, right, you're right. then the slug is perfect. In particular, the banana slug, which is a penis-chewing slug, yes, so to speak. And it is also the um, it is also a mascot. Yes, at uh, UC Santa Cruz, which we mentioned, and we had a, a bit of a laugh about. And lo and behold, we heard from a listener who is a PhD candidate at USC uh, UC Santa Cruz. So she writes in with this fabulous uh, postcard. 
uh, for starters and says, Hi, I just wanted to say thanks for the shout out uh, to WCSC in your podcast, Slug Life. Uh, it uh, came out the same week I handed in my PhD dissertation on lizard mating behavior, not slugs. And by the way, the, the, the title of the, um, the paper is Male Aggression Varies with Throat Color in Two Distinct Populations of the Mesquite Lizard. She continues, uh, it was still a perfect timing, though, because your podcast um, has helped me through many long hours in the lab. Please enjoy some slugged theme goodies as a token <laughs> of appreciation, uh, Beth. So, yeah, so she sent um, a box that contained, uh, first of all, some, some, uh, some buttons, which yes, are nice. Yes, yes. Uh, and these, I don't mind them. One of them says 100% slug, which... Um, uh, you know, means that you're 100% behind this team and their their slug mascot. Uh-huh. And then there's also this other button that um, that I actually don't mind either. That says uh, that that has the, the the university insignia and then has this cartoon slug that's reading uh, the works of Plato. And he has little glasses on. It's pretty adorable. And actually. he has arms for some reason. Yeah. So I can stand that too because that's right. All right, he's a slug sorta, of, but he's also he's he's reading Plato. He's 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 even more intelligent than we thought. But then she also sent this. There's another um, portion of the care box that is kind of horrifying. Okay, so this is a box of chocolates. What could be horrifying about that? Well, because they're all shaped like slugs. They're beautiful. They the um, and some of them are banana slugs too. Yeah, by the way, some of them are yellow coated in something, and uh, and others are just more like a dark chocolate. And some seem to have like a, a white chocolate infusion that gives them kind of that mottled color that is common to slugs. Yeah, I was gonna say that looks like the leopard slug, as we know, is the gymnast of the the sexual reproductive world. Yeah. Um, this is so cool, Beth. Thank you so much, and um, congratulations. I'm, I'm glad that we could be in your in your ear holes with you. Uh, while you were working on your dissertation, and I think that's just awesome. Indeed. We always love to hear from listeners who, uh, 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 all listeners, but also when they have uh, uh, you know, some sort of science in their, their lives, it's always fun. And thank you for making Robert squirm with that chocolate. It's yeah, pretty priceless. I, I do not know if I will ever eat one of these, um, but we were talking it would be an interesting experiment to see uh, to what extent uh, people of the office here uh, actually uh, ate them, and if they did, would they only eat the rear portions of the slug? Mm-hmm. Because for me, if I had to, I would break off the the rear end of the slug and eat that. Because as we discussed in the podcast, all sorts of horrible stuff happens at the front of the slug. Oh it's yeah, the rear of the slug where you're you're safe. Yeah, ironically. the front's got the penis, the anus, uh, but we'll now, definitely need a control of- box of chocolates to place alongside it yeah. to, to do a Watch fair representation first. of what happens here. But um, all of this is awesome. So thank you again, Beth. So if you would like to reach out to us, um, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. On Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And if you ever do get a wild hair and you want to send us a letter or something, uh, uh, you know, feel free to send us some <laughs> some snail mail or slug mail, if you will. Uh, you can find our address on the How Stuff Works website. Just do a search for HowStuffWorks.com contact, and you'll find the page that has the mailing address. And you can always contact us by sending us an email at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.